Approach and identify. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome, human. Logan! I am ready for you. How many of you want this to be lasting? I never heard of a Sandman running, ever. There is no sanctuary. Fish, plankton, sea greens, and protein from the sea. You don't have to die. Well, no one has to die at 30. You can live. Live. You are terminated, runner. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, no. and Scott H. Gardner, overwhelming, am I not? Now, fly the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bin. Retrogram complete. Proceed 03303. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and joining me, as always, is my good buddy Paul Spataro. How's it going, Paul? I'm almost like double the age of, of renewal. <laughs> You know, so like like my, I, my palm is like gray. <laughs> <laughs> I think about this subject probably far more often than I than I should. I most definitely thought about it when I turned thirty, but we're we're possibly getting ahead of ourselves for for listeners who may not be terribly familiar with this. So Yeah, I think this is a topic that has kind of fallen out of the uh, general knowledge. I think at one point it was more consistently known by people and now not quite so much yeah and that that makes me sad because when i do hear people mention it i almost always hear the qualifier of cheesy and i you know i i kind of vacillate on whether i think the the movie or the concept or whatever is cheesy i i think it's 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 a wonderful kind of dated if you know what i mean it's it has that that wonderful 70s futuristic aesthetic that i love so much it's probably honestly one of the biggest reasons that i love the film and and of course this adaptation is it just has that that 70s futuristic look to it that i love i mean both this and and star trek the motion picture which is just a couple years after this both have essentially the same aesthetic and I, and I just there's something about it that just totally vibes with me. I love it, you know. I think if you're going to go to cheesy and I don't want to spend too too much time talking about the movie, uh, but I think if you're going to go to cheesy, I don't think it's so much the concept as it is some of the dated special effects and yes. cinematography in the movie. And I think you have to kind of be willing to get by that. I mean, you know, and, and again, I'm getting way, way ahead here, but the character of Box, who's just so much fun, but <laughs> when you look at it on the screen, I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's a guy in a, in a bunch of box cost, you know, a bunch of square silvery things that, you know, we, we could recreate that at home now if we wanted to. That's not really much of a special effect. Well, you know, that that's one of many, many, many reasons that I've long wanted to cover this 
particular uh, series, you know, on a show. Now, to, to give the listeners a peek behind the curtain, you know, you and I and Bill were talking a while ago. You know, as we do about, you know, every so often, we'll we'll kind of have a, a meeting of minds and be like, so, you know, this year, what do we want to try to accomplish? And one of the the things, you know, one of the gauntlets I threw down is that this year. I would like to really start getting to some of those back burner projects that, you know, that, you know, basically those things that I've always been like, I, you know, I've always wanted to talk about this and I've never done a show on it kind of thing. And this one's been, you know, top of the list for me for a long time is to cover Logan's run, you know, on a show, you know, talking about the comics adaptation because I, I really love this. And one of the big reasons I've always wanted to talk about this is that, to me, this is a perfect uh, melding of both the film and the. To me, they're they're kind of one, but you have to have them both to get like the full experience, if you know what I mean. And I can't really think of any. I know Marvel did a ton of film adaptations. I mean, you know, they did everything from you know, Close Encounters and Raiders and Jaws 2 and, you know, all these, you know, to, to like Muppets Take Manhattan and, you know, just about every pop movie in between, it seems like. Um, but I can't really think of too many of their other adaptations, you know, as good as some of them are, as poor as some of them are, where I really felt like, man, you know, together with the film, you know, that that's the way you have to experience this. But Logan's Run, I, I think, is unique because... I, I really love the movie, but this, I mean, this has a certain, uh, a better timeless quality to it, I, I think, than the film does. Because the film, as you say, the film ages, and, and it shows its age through, you know, the, the effects and, and the hairdos and, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas I, I feel like the comic holds up so much better. It's been a while since I've actually opened this and, and read it and, and rereading this issue for this review I'm just I'm stunned anew by how well it really holds up. Yeah, I don't disagree. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to add a lot to that, but you know, you know what? It's funny just to I mean, we get again. I keep feeling like we're kind of jumping ahead because probably got to get in the synopsis before we go too much further. But uh, we just had a recent conversation where we talked about uh, George Perez as inked by Klaus Janssen. Yes. And I gave it a very big negative. <laughs> uh, and yet here we have George Perez inked by Klaus Janssen. And now I'm giving it a positive on this one. So <laughs> obviously it's not a universal rule. I was struggling to remember who did ink him on this. And I, I have not looked ahead to see who inks him on all of the series. Um, I'm assuming it's Janssen for the whole thing, but I, I honestly can't remember. But see, for me... I didn't come into this series with number one. Uh, I came in at issue two. So, you know, it's basically issue two is where I kind of discovered, you know, George Perez for myself, at least, you know, where I really took note of the of the art and all of that. So, you know, that'll be the one that I'll I'll probably fawn over even more than this than this Mm -hmm. first issue. But, yeah, I'd forgotten who had inked him on this and was really impressed to look through and be like, Oh, it's, it's Klaus Jansen. Cause like I say, I, you know, I don't dislike Jansen, but Jansen's very hit and miss for me. And a lot of that depends on not only how Jansen he's being, but also who is it that he's inking. 
And I wouldn't naturally think of Perez as, you know, my first choice for, for you know, for him to be the, the person that he's inking. But this, this is awesome. I mean, I, I really love this. But, of course, I'm, I'm very attached to this as well. So. Well, I, I also have I, – I haven't looked at it in years, but I know I have a, you know, one of those books at home, you know, The Art of George Perez – uh, you know, uh-huh. I also have the art of Neil Adams, and I think I have an art of Jordan Byrne as well. But anyway, it has some unused Logan's Run pictures in it, and they—I don't recall if they were just pencils or if they're inked. But if they're inked, they're probably inked by Klaus Jansen. And I do remember just thinking they looked really sharp at the time. Is that so, the Focus On book? Focus On George Perez? Is that the one? Uh, that's not the title of it. No. Oh, okay. So I, I, I'll find it at some point and I'll post like a picture of it or something, the cover at least. Yeah, I'd like to see that. That that might be something I'll have to track down because I have the the focus on George Perez and it's been a long time since I've thumbed through that book, so I can't remember what's in there for Logan's Run, if anything. I, I imagine there's got to be at least something because my understanding is that. Uh, Perez holds this work in, in very high regard and, you know, is a, a personal favorite of, of, you know, the stuff that he worked on, which I think it deserves to be because I think this is actually some of his best stuff, to be honest with you. So I agree. I think and this is early Perez, too. It is. Yeah. I, I looked at that a, a little while ago to see, you know, just how, you know, how far along in his career was he. And he was a couple years in, but not by a long shot. I mean, it's not like the very first thing he ever did, but he hadn't been around very long. He was still, um, I think it was right in the midst of when he was on his first Avengers work, which is, you know, really fairly early in his career. But I, I think this is awesome. It doesn't, you know, this really holds up to me. Whereas some of the, his very earliest stuff, like say like that stuff he did, like the first few issues of like man wolf, for example, it's great, but it has a certain clunkiness to it, you know, of, of a guy that's just getting started and, and lear- you know, learning the ropes type of thing. Whereas this, I, I don't, I don't get that feel from this. This, the, he's, he's got some solid chops by this point. You know, he, he has his definitive style is, is pretty much established by this point. There's not a lot of awkwardness or, or clunkiness to it, which is one of the things I really like about it. I would agree. I definitely would agree. Well, so, are we ready uh, to, uh, to dive I was, was going to say, do you want to do the synopsis or do you want to discuss the cover first? Uh, well, that's part of uh, part of the whole rundown here. Then, so. then you might as well go into the synopsis. All right. So uh, this is Logan's Run number one. The cover date on this is January of 1977. Now, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this issue is actually on sale October 19th of 1976. And I just think that's interesting to note because the film was released June 23rd of that same year of 1976. So let me see, that's July, August, September, October. So that's four months later that this first issue is coming out. And I just think that's kind of odd, but maybe I'm, I'm thinking of it more of like in a Star Wars model, whereas like the first couple issues of Star Wars actually were out on the stands before the film debuted. Whereas this, maybe it's more of a thing of, okay, we've got a big hit on our hands, let's do an adaptation type, which is probably the case, but it just seems odd to me that, that there's that much lag time between the release of the film and the release of the first issue. I think this was more common, though. 
that that the movie came out and then the adaptation came out. Because you got to remember too, this isn't a time when you didn't have DVD, you didn't have home video to speak of. You just had whatever was being broadcast on television, and that was it. So right. if you wanted to relive the experience, the comic book was one of the ways to do it. That you didn't, you know, it provided an experience that was different. But it was as close as you were going to come in all likelihood to seeing it again for quite some time. So there was something to be said for the comic adaptation then that is not necessarily as as effective now. Right. And I think that definitely owes in hugely to why I'm so very attached to this, because, you know, as you say, this was how you relived movies. You, you didn't have the tape or the DVD to just slap in and watch whenever you want. Or maybe you had a Viewmaster reel of it. <laughs> right, yeah. But, you know, Logan's Run is one I remember that you kind of had to you had to be patient and you kind of had to seek it out, you know, when it would play on TV. And, of course, I didn't realize for the longest time, probably until I actually bought the movie for the first time, that the televised version that I had seen growing up and that, you know, that I had become so attached to was much like the comic, very sanitized. That, you know, I mean, the movie's not, you know, overly dirty or anything, but there's a lot of sexual stuff in the movie that didn't get played on TV back, you know, when they would air it in the, in the 70s and 80s and everything that I didn't realize was in there until, again, you know, I, I saw the full uncensored film much later. So, yeah, so you, you had to relive it this way through the comic page. And uh, I, I think that's that owes in heavily to why I'm so attached to this comics adaptation because you know I just I read it so many times. Um, so the cover is uh, by George Perez and inked by Al Milgram, and it depicts. I, I, I really enjoy this cover, even for all the negative space, because I know you and I are both not really you know huge negative space people, but it's got the the classic logo from the movie that's kind of star wars-esque because it has linked letters just like with star wars uh classic logo of logan's run says at the top an official adaptation of the mgm production spectacular first issue i used i love when they they had stuff like that on the cover welcome to the future where life is great and there's only one small catch now i find it interesting that they don't put what the small catch is because I think most of the posters for the film actually said what the catch is. But I wonder if they eliminated that to save space on the cover or if they just thought it was more suspenseful this way. I, I mean, don't the know. Dialogue the dialogue balloons on it don't give anything away as to why they're being chased. And this is, again, a very Star Wars, you know, like early Marvel Star Wars-esque type of cover because you've got, uh, you know, you've got Logan and Jessica uh, and they're running from being, uh, you know, chased, pursued, shot at by, you know, this this legion of uh, of Sandmen behind them. And I love how the the big hand, the life clock hand, is actually reaching for them like a giant claw. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jessica's saying, "Logan, they're out to kill us." And Logan's saying, "Run, Jessica, run!" So it's, yeah, it doesn't really give you a whole lot of, you know, what what's going on other than, you know, it's Logan's run and they're running. You know, that's that's about all that you really get from the cover. Pretty much. We don't get what the what the, what the one small catch is. Uh, original cover price on this, 30 cents. So part one is ingeniously entitled part one. <laughs> the writer on it is Jerry Conway, who was also the editor. 
Uh, penciler is, of course, George Perez. Inker, Klaus Jansen. Letterer, Joe Rosen. And colorist is Marie Severin. So after a beautiful opening splash page that essentially serves as another cover, which I think is interesting because by this point, I don't think Marvel wasn't really doing a lot of this sort of thing by this point. But essentially, that's what it is. It's like a second cover. Um, you've got Stan Lee presents Logan's run. Now, it's interesting that there's no verbiage up there. You know, a lot of times it would give the verbiage, you know, bitten by a radioactive spider or whatever the case would be. It'd kind of lay out what the whole story was and then say Stanley Presents, whatever the title was. This one just simply says Stanley Presents and says Logan's Run. Uh, it says, beginning a journey into the world of the 23rd century where life is pure perfection, but there's just one catch. And again, they don't tell you what the one catch is. Uh, adapted from the screenplay by David Zelig, I guess is the name, David Zelig Goodman. A Saul David production for Metro Goodwin Mayor, copyright 1976 by MGM. So they're, you know, they're really getting those plugs in there for what this project is. And uh, I just, I really like this page because again, it's just Logan and Jessica running. You've got the big hand behind them with the life clock, although this time it's an actual human hand. It's not the big crystally looking hand. And then behind them is that uh, that wonderful cityscape that uh that I'm, I'm just in love with that model from the movie i think that thing is so cool uh so we open to exactly this the city um and the city is uh, a very epcot-esque futuristic domed environment um think epcot think uh especially in the second panel right here i always think of the contemporary resort at walt disney world because that building right there and that second panel looks just like it you've even got the you know, it's not a monorail, but you've got the the tube running through it. You know, with the with the maze cars zip through, and uh, you know, this uh, opens strangely enough to a scene that is not depicted in the film, which is of a a black man desperately on the run in search of sanctuary and hoping he has lost whatever or whomever is chasing him, but he hasn't. As we see the crowd flee before the presence of an armed ebony-clad figure who proclaims, "Runner!" That's as far as you go. The runner begins to plead for his life, but to no avail, as he is zracked <laughs> square uh, in the torso by what appears to be a heavy green laser blast. And I just got to say, you know, you know, that's another deviation from the film, but one that I really like. I, I like this laser blast effect so much better than the, I always assumed it was some sort of sonic weapon or something in the movie. Because, you know, they, they squeeze the trigger. It makes like a burst and then it would burst on whatever it hit, but you wouldn't actually see a trail, like a laser or anything. And to me, it always seemed like some sort of weird sonic-y weapon or something. But anyway, the man's taken out, and the killer, a Sandman, approaches the body while onlookers both praise his skill and comment on the quote-unquote stupid runner. And the Sandman ensures that the runner's life clock has gone black, indicating that he is dead. Elsewhere, in Nursery, we pick up where the film actually begins with Logan 5, another Sandman, checking in on Logan 6, a newborn. And here we get another moment that's not in the film, as we're told that Logan 5 presumes himself to be the father of the child of Logan 6. Now, in the film, that was very unclear, and I'd always assumed that Logan 6 was simply just the next designated Sandman, because they even say that in the film. It's stated that he's going to grow up to be a Sandman. Logan says something about it's not every day you, you know, a Sandman's born. So anyway, 
Uh, Logan is joined by the Sandman from the beginning uh, of the book, the opening sequence, and we learn that this is Francis Seven, his friend and colleague. After a sinister remark about how Logan Five will be dead by the time Logan Six grows up, unless he renews, Francis invites Logan to something called Carousel. They make their way via maze car through the travel tubes to the heart of the city, Arcade. There, in another scene not in the film, uh, Francis bumps into a female acquaintance who chides him about not having seen him in a while. She tells him that tonight is her night for Carousel, and he is surprised to find out that she is turned 30 years old. She shows him the palm of her hand and that her life clock, which is now red, is flashing, indicating that her time is up. Today you try for renewal, says Francis. And I will renew, Francis, she says confidently. You wait and see. Inside Carousel, a theater in the round full of thousands of civilians and some Sandmen, Logan and Francis take their seats and were treated to a haunting spectacle of eerily dressed people, all of whom identify by raising their palms and showing their flashing life clock. Slowly, the figures rise into the air whilst the crowd shouts, Renew! 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 And as they spin and float and turn into the air, they eventually hit an invisible force field barrier and one by one flame out of existence. In the midst of all this, Logan receives an alert on his transceiver and not wishing to spoil Francis's evening's enjoyment, goes after a runner on his own. Francis, however, does follow and together they make a kind of a sick game out of pursuing, taunting and ultimately killing this frightened, desperate man. Logan, who actually made the killing shot, checks the body and discovers a strange object that he calls a lucky charm. uh, And then he requests an identity check of the deceased from computer. Computer gives an affirmative, but Logan is suspicious as the man doesn't look anything like his photo on file. But Computer confirms the man's ID and says that he got a facelift, which is against the law for those approaching last day, from a place called New You, and Logan promises to investigate. Afterwards, we see a man on a vertical hover sled approach the body, hover over it, and clean up the remains via some form of disintegration. Later, in his lavish quarters, Logan, dressed in a casual flowing robe, searches for distraction in the form of female companionship via the circuit, a sort of televiewer-slash-transporter combination where he summons a beautiful woman, Jessica. Logan notes that she is wearing the same lucky charm as the runner he terminated a short time before. They talk, and he learns that she is sad because a friend of hers went on carousel tonight and was, quote-unquote, killed like all the others. She doesn't believe in the proposed possibility of renewal and that anyone who goes on carousel is simply gone forever. They have a brief philosophical discussion where we learn everything that we need to know about this society. When you reach 30 years of age, it's carousel and trying for renewal, which may or may not even be a thing, or you can run, and that's where the Sandmen come in. Logan believes in his work and points out that he's never killed anyone in his life. Sandmen terminate runners. And then he says, the city needs a balanced ecology, a steady population. Uh, When he learns that Jessica's life clock is green, meaning that she's not even 21, he chides her for worrying about something that is years away. The implied possibility of sex now off the table, (laughs) Logan lets Jessica go and shortly his friend Francis arrives with two women. Cut to the next day where Logan and Francis report to Sandman HQ to make their reports on their prior day's activities. 
While Francis reports, Logan observes a run in progress on the monitors and seems a bit put off by his fellow Sandman's gleefulness about the possibility of the runner meeting a gruesome death by radiation in the main reactor corridor. Uh, but then he actually celebrates a short while later when the runner is terminated by the Sandman who's pursuing him. Francis comes out of the debrief and tells Logan it is his turn. Logan drops off the effects of the runner he terminated the prior day in a special scanner, and the lucky charm begins to glow. Computer tells Logan to approach, and he does, sitting in a chair provided and identifying by placing his life clock on a special pad. The computer tells Logan the object is an Ankh, a pre-millennial religious object. Now, in the film, uh, they use the term pre-catastrophe, and I actually like that one better. It tells Logan the object Ankh is linked to a belief in something called sanctuary, and that sanctuary is believed to be the place where 1,056 unaccounted for citizens have gone. Stunned by the number, Logan proposes that surely the number is too high and that some of them may have reached renewal on Carousel. Negative, responds Computer. Unaccounted for citizens number 1,056. But question, Logan says. Didn't some of them reach renewal? Some? Answer? Zero. Unaccounted for citizens number 1056. Logan 5, assignment to locate sanctuary and report. Authorization to penetrate city seals. Sanctuary, find, and destroy. Wait, answer me, says Logan. Does anyone renew? And the computer just continues. Assignment secret. Logan 5, transfer to runner-seeking sanctuary. But I can't be a runner, Logan says. I'm only 26. I've got four more years until my life clock starts blinking. Then suddenly, the seated Logan is bathed in red light. Afterward, when he lifts his palm to check, he is stunned to find his life clock is flashing red. Life clock altered. Take object with you. What about my four years? Do I get them back? Computer, computer, do I get them back? Slowly, like a man mortally wounded, Logan stands. Then slowly he turns, and slowly at first, he begins to run. And that's the end of the first issue. What would you think, Paul? I love it. <laughs> it's awesome, uh, isn't it? it? It's in its own way, because it, I, I think you kind of hit on this already, because it has kind of a timeless quality to the way it's presented here, because it's not dependent on special effects and the, and the technology of the time. Uh, it doesn't have the same dated feeling. And I want to qualify that a little bit because while I do think there is a certain dated feeling to the movie, I think you can make an effort to kind of forgive that and move on. And then it's a, it's still a very enjoyable movie to watch. In fact, uh, as we're sitting here, I watched it last night uh, because <laughs> I knew we were going to do this and I just kind of got in the mood for it. But this doesn't require that. This, this is just, you know, this is a regular comic story. You know, one of the things about the movie and or the comic is they never really explain the reason why they're trying to eliminate everybody over 30 other than just to say that that's the way the society works. They don't tell you if that's an ecological reason to conserve uh, resources or, you know, what, what exactly, per, what purpose it serves. Uh, but I, you know, you, you got to kind of just take that leap of faith as you go into it. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I guess, you know, we're going to go through this a little bit more, but just, you know, at, at the point when he starts saying, do I get my four years back? Do I get my four years back? You can almost hear the computer going, hmm, 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 hmm. 
<laughs> you know, it, it's just, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a little predictable in that respect, but it's, it's also kind of cool. And I think it's less apparent here than it is in the movie that the computer is initially doing this to send him on a mission. I think here it's just kind of like it seems like the computer's screwing him over. In in the in the movie, it, it feels more like the computer is sending him on a mission, but it's a suicide mission, and it just doesn't want to tell him that it is. Right. You know, the the characters aren't necessarily drawn on model. I think Francis is drawn more on model than Logan, certainly. Well, uh, that that's one of the things that I'm really impressed with Perez is in, in this is that they didn't have character likeness rights. But I find it interesting that I've never found it distracting. I would often find, I mean, my, my big comparison with this, of course, is going to be Marvel Star Wars, because, you know, that was always, you know, my, my big, you know, Marvel comics film adaptation thing that I really followed and, and loved, you know, on the same level as this. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, I always found it distracting that the characters didn't look like the characters. And it took me a long time to, to learn to just kind of get over it. Whereas with this, for some reason, I, I never found it distracting. Um, Logan doesn't look like Michael York. Honestly, I think Logan here looks more appealing than Michael York. Not, yeah, I, I don't know. He, he, there's, there's more of uh, if, to me. I never found Michael York to be all that charismatic of an actor. I also never found him to be all that believable of an action star. Now he does fine in this movie. But he's he's not an actor I would have ever cast in anything really to be honest with you. Well, it's uh, funny the one that I always thought of as the charismatic one in Logan's Run is actually Francis Seven, mm-hmm. and the Francis here, while he doesn't really look like that actor, I I also think he looks enough like him to where it's not distracting, especially the on the on the third page that shot of him looking down at the dead runner, that. While it doesn't, again, it doesn't look like the actor, it still does. If you know what I mean, it's kind of weird in that aspect. You know, it's, it's not got a more sim- similarity than yeah. the uh, than than the uh, what you call it, the Logan character does. But like I said, I don't mind the lack of similarity because, like I said, I find this <laughs> this Logan to be more appealing. What I've always thought is is kind of funny and kind of ironic is that you know here the book is Logan's Run, and the way that Perez draws Francis always reminds me of Wolverine um, between his hair and the, the mutton chops. Um, so, so we have the Logan always, Yeah, it's, it's funny. be funny if your son grew up to look like him. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, that's a testament to how much I love this story is, you know, that, that you know, my, my youngest son is named Logan and he's named Logan for Logan's Run because I've always been very enamored of, of this story. Let me ask you now, when, when Melissa was pregnant with Logan, uh, did you tell mm-hmm. her why you liked the name? No, it's funny because it, you know, I'm thinking she might have rejected Scotty, it if she knew. Yeah, exactly. You know, with my, with my older boy, you know, when, when she was first pregnant, you know, for the first time, I tried so hard to sneak a, a good geeky name past her and she caught them all and every one, every one that I tried. But then when she got pregnant with Logan, I was just that much more determined that I was going to sneak a good geeky reference past her. <laughs> and so, you know, one day, you know, as we're tossing names around, I just said, well, you know, what do you think of Logan's, uh, yeah, I was going to say Logan's, Logan Taylor. And she just, you know, without questioning, she goes, oh, I like that name. And, 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 oh, and it works if it's a boy or a girl. Cause at that time we didn't know if he was going to be a boy or a girl. 
And so we just, that was it. You know, Logan Taylor it was. And she never, strangely, she just never questioned it, you know. It's just that's a name that we both like. Because my daughter's middle name is Taylor as well. Oh, that's funny. Now, is it Taylor for the same reason that, that I chose Taylor? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's the thing that's funny is, you know, it, it, was, it was quite a while later before it ever came up in conversation. We were actually watching one of the, the X-Men movies. I forget which one. And somebody called Wolverine Logan. And she just does that, you know, that, you know, the look, you know, that, that slow head turn, you know, raised eyes, you know, <laughs> look at me. Look. I'm like, nope, that's, that's not where it came from, but it got her to thinking, you know, okay, well, where does it come from? And I said, ha, I got you twice with this one. It, Logan from Logan's Run and Taylor from uh, Planet of the Apes. So there you go. I got a, I got a twofer. <laughs> <laughs> now go get your brother Zayas over here and let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's come to think of it, um, you know, we have uh, we have pets, and uh, our oldest pet, our oldest dog's name is Jessica, and uh, her, her her name comes from right from this. That was Logan's dog. So, oh wow, <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Well, our dog is eleven from uh, Stranger Things, so oh, I can get away funny. with it for pets all the time. <laughs> So now the splash page, uh, first question on that, you know, it's got a really nice re rendering of the two of them running towards the reader. And in the background, you have uh, the the outline of a hand with the uh, gem in the middle of it. Right. Do you think that would have been more effective if they drew the hand the way it appears in the movie? Or do you like it better this way with the negative space? It looks it looks interesting. I think visually it may be more dynamic because I'm thinking if it was because initially I was going to say, oh, they sh definitely should have done the big crystal hand. But then I wonder if they had done the big crystal hand, would it just be too busy? Because there's something about that big negative space of, you know, the, the outline of a human hand with the with the life crystal in the middle that just it looks really cool. It, do, you think, a, uh, do you think George Perez drew this the way a preschooler does a turkey around Thanksgiving? <laughs> <laughs> so is that George's? Hand? Hey, it could you, you know it could be because if you put your if you put your I'm assuming he's right-handed. I don't know, but I'm assuming he's right-handed. If you put your left hand up, splayed out like that, that's yeah. I don't think that's is that palm up. I, I, I think it no, works either way. No, that would be palm way. down, I think. If, if that's the left hand, that's palm down. But the shape of it, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think an argument could be made. It could be either right hand palm up or left hand palm down. I thought the shape's about the same, honestly. <laughs> it, it actually, you know, I, I do think that he probably actually did that to get the shape the way he wanted to. But I think he may have also cut the thumb a little short to have it fit on the page the way he wanted it to. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I now that you point that out, it almost does look like it's missing a joint. So and once again, I got a comment that, you know, I think in this particular book and maybe it's more the tone of the book than anything else. But I think that the uh, Klaus Janssen inks, first of all, they don't overpower Perez. Right. That's, that's important. You do see some of the. Uh, the darkness and some of the sketchiness that you get in a Klaus Jansen book, but you don't, it doesn't overpower it the way it does in other ones. Now, I don't know 
it's hard for me to say in that man wolf story, and maybe we should cover that at some point to go over it a little bit more in detail, but I don't know if that's a case of Perez really was more green and let Jansen have his way with it more, or if Jansen just kind of went out of his way to be a little bit more intrusive on it, or choice number three, uh, the tone of the story is a little different and this one it just is more suited to. I'm not sure which one it is. I don't think it's the latter, honestly, because I think this one is just more visually engaging to look at, period, even if you're not paying attention to the story itself. Right. So I'm going to say I think at this point Perez had a little bit more of his feet underneath him and and his pencils were a little bit more detailed and it allowed Jansen a little less opportunity to, uh, you know, to impose his own will on it. That that would be my... Yeah thought process on it i think the art kind of kind of supports that i do i i think this is uh perez feeling much more confident in himself but also i mean he's he by this point he's he is george perez if you know what i mean he's he's developed a, a style that's that's readily apparent and very distinct that this this is his art style um whereas some of his early stuff still had a certain novice and and clunky look to it you know that that very earliest manual because i think we at some point i think we have covered the very first perez manwolf story i think or or at least it was one of the first and as much as i love it because it is beautiful there's also there's there's a lot of wonky to it you know some certain perspectives don't work certain anatomy is a little funny and everything i don't and, and I'm really pouring through this. I don't find any of that in this. There's nothing uh, I'm seeing, at, at least in this first issue, where I'm like, ooh, that doesn't look right. Or, you know, the perspective's weird or, you know, the anatomy's funny or something like that. I mean, everything works and and looks really good. If, if I have any criticism of the art, and it's really hard for me to, to critique the, you know, harshly critique this because I'm, I'm you know, I've been so... Uh, attached to it my whole life but you know if i if i had to offer any serious criticism of it is that i do think it is a little dark and i mean dark as far as um a heavy ink you know a heavy line in the ink yes, there's some thicker lines in it i definitely agree yeah thick, definitely thicker lines um which that's i mean that's Klaus jensen that's just how he inks he inks with a very heavy line i don't think it hurts the book but it does have that look of if this was a movie, I'd be like, they needed to lighten it up a little bit, you know? And so it has that look to it. Like it should be a little brighter than it is, which is funny because I think of the movie as bright, you know, so much of the movie because it was literally shot in a shopping mall is very bright and airy. And, you know, there's a lot of color and that sort of thing. Um, this doesn't lack for color, but a lot of the color is, kind of muted or you know it's just it's not it's not brightly colored um it's a little garishly colored at points but it's not bright and airy um like the film itself is so um but that i mean that's honestly that that's you know art wise that's the only real critique i've got you know as, as far as a negative critique I, I think the art's fantastic in this i'm gonna i'm gonna only disagree with you to the extent that i think the darkness in this is and it's not it's not uh, it's not very dark. It's just there's dark moments in it. But I think that the, the, it creates more of a foreboding nature to it that I think 
the movie would have even benefited from a little. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to say in, in some ways I think it improves on on the tone of the movie. I can see that. Yeah, that's a good argument because um, yeah, there's maybe that's you know you may have hit upon something. Maybe that's the reason why the movie has that feel for some people. Like you know, again going back to the thing of you know a lot of folks will will call it cheesy or whatever is that. Um, because it does have that lighter visual tone to it that maybe the, the, the ominous stuff doesn't hit properly for some people. Whereas in this, I think it hits really well. One thing that helps, and I purposely wrote my synopsis the way that I wrote it for the uninitiated, because you, you get it in dribs and drabs in this first issue. I, I actually like the fact that, that the cover, despite saying there's only one small catch, and then the inside front cover, you know, the, the splash page, same thing. There's only one small catch, but they don't tell you what it is. I like that because it actually comes to you in dribs and drabs as you read the story and as you pay attention, there's there's hints. You know, the very first hint we get is in nursery where, where Francis says, you'll never know for sure. Um, besides, by the time he grows up, you'll be dead. And then Logan says, well, unless I renew. Well, what what the hell are they talking about? And you keep going and, you know, it really doesn't hit you until the whole thing with Renew that, oh, my God, they're they're killing these people because they're now 30 years old. And that's where I agree with you. I think that that darker look of the book. Yeah, I, I think it does. It lends to uh, the darker psychology uh, of the feel of the story. You know, it gives a certain ominous weight to it that. There's a dirty little secret, and it's pretty, it's pretty frightening, you know, especially yes. for those of us well over thirty at this point. <laughs> As I said, I'm 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 up for my second renewal now. <laughs> uh, what do you think about this first portion that isn't in the movie with the runner that Francis takes out? Other than the visual aspect of it, which I think is terrific, I'm talking about just from a storytelling point of view, what do you think? I like this, and I've often wondered, did they actually film this and it just didn't make it into the movie? I actually don't know that, but I kind of like this as the opener better because I think right out of the gate, it kind of establishes what is you know what's happening is i mean you don't get the whole story you don't know exactly why he killed the guy but you get the sense that there, something's going on here but i don't know then again does that counteract the whole you know because we we were told where is it here oh it's on the splash page uh journey of the 23rd century where life is pure perfection but then again when the story opens is it pure perfection if right out of the gate somebody's being terminated in the street. So I don't know. Does it, does it affect that? Cause in, you know, the movie, you know, we're well into the movie. I mean, we don't see the first run until Logan leaves carousel to pursue that runner that, that they kind of toy with. So I don't know. It, it, it's interesting. I never really thought about it before. Cause I really like the sequence, but I'm always a sucker for the, the quote unquote DVD extras in the Marvel adaptations. And this is definitely a big DVD extra. Cause this is not in the film. Yeah. I, I agree with what you, what you're building up there though, because while I, I'm also a sucker for the extras uh, and, and, you know, deleted scenes and that kind of thing, there does seem to be some sort of benefit to making it look like society's perfect before you see its dark underbelly. Right. 
So to yeah. to start, to, you know, to open with the scene that shows it is is probably not the best narrative choice. So you know, once you know everything, then it's fine. And like I said, as an extra, it's probably good. But from from a just storytelling point of view, there's probably a benefit to uh, to keeping that hidden for just a moment. So they they all go to Carousel, and this is one of the things in science fiction movies. I don't know that always just kind of just seems a little silly to me is when they have these things like why is the crowd there what are they seeing i mean you know there's a little spectacle to them being pulled up into the air and all that but like what exactly are they getting out of this it's not like there's a competition it's not like they see who does renew and who doesn't i don't know <laughs> I've, I've always looked at this as almost like a, a, a you know, now I, I don't mean this in any sacrilegious kind of way or anything, but I almost look at this as like a like a like a religious indoctrination, if you know what I mean. This is ensuring somehow or other that the people are properly brainwashed, if you know what I mean. That that they're into it. That that hopefully they themselves, when it's their time, won't run, but will submit themselves willingly to the exact same thing. That that's how I've always interpreted it because to me, you know, right from when I was a kid watching this, uh, this to me has always been frightening. Even now, I'm in my fifties and I watch that sequence of the movie and it freaks me out. It's it's frightening um, on so many levels. For one, is the fact that these the the people that are undergoing this. Now I didn't give any sort of visual description of it in my synopsis, but essentially they're in like a, a full body, you know, form fitting leotard with kind of a weird flame motif on it. Um, and then a robed head with a ski mask. Essentially it's a ski mask that they're wearing. So there's no other than them raising their palm and identifying themselves to the computer. There's nothing to give them away of who they are as an individual. They're all faceless. And this, this occurs actually on your birthday, correct? I've that. I've always wondered. I think that was the implication. So the, the one of the things that the comic leaves out that the store that the movie made a point of was saying specifically what day and year and and class of people this was. So it says something like Capricorn fifteen year of the city blah blah blah. Uh, we don't get any of that in this. So other than being told on the splash at the beginning that this is the twenty third century, we're not getting any of that. So I I'm assuming. Uh, especially from the dialogue with the woman that Francis wrote, ran into, that that yes, this is their birthday, their thirtieth birthday. Which means but, that you do this every single day. Which then it goes back to like what I was saying that it almost seems like, you know, really this, they're going to have this crowd of people come every day to watch this. So that that lends into my other thought that you know when I was a kid, I I had the impression that this was more like maybe a monthly event, like like everybody born. Um, in this month, but I don't know. But then that kind of goes against the whole thing of last day. So yeah, I never really thought about that before. But you're right; they would have to do it every day. Yeah, that that would be a little much if you're doing this every day, as opposed to like a church service where it's you know once a week or once a month or something like that. No, I see you. Uh, I say you'd come for your family. You know, your your sister's uh, day is up, so you, you know, or your parents or whatever. Although they don't seem to have a regular parental relationship. They don't seem to have regular family relationships from what I could see in this. Right. Well, so. how many people would have to live in this city 
for there to be this many people that they're terminating every single day, plus to draw this much of a crowd. Because as you say, if this is happening every day, am I going to feel compelled to go to Carousel every day? So you would think that to have this kind of a crowd, I don't know. That I again, one of those things. I guess I just never really thought of. Um, I didn't. It never really occurred to me that this would have to be, you know, a daily thing. And I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's really the impression I've always had with the with the film or not. That it was something that was happening every day. But I, I you know, I, I'm guessing by the way that the date is given. And everything that, yeah, I guess it would have to be. So I don't know how, how, either how indoctrinated are they or how bored are they with their lives that that it packs in this much of a crowd. You going to carousel today? No, I'm taking a nap. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now I'm going to go catch the, you know, the latest film or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Or or I'm going to do the... uh... Logan's run version of a hookup, which apparently seems to be quite easy. I, that part of the the thing has always kind of fascinated me. The thing with uh, the circuit, you know, that they actually. So evidently, I, I, the way I've always kind of envisioned it is that they're putting themselves on the circuit, but are they remaining in some sort of like transporter buffer to where? That's the way it seems. You know, no, what is this? So this is the, yeah. like the futuristic version of what do they call that thing? Tinder? Is that what that is? is yeah, that the, yeah, it's, it's kind of like that, except you know, rather than just seeing the person's picture, you actually like beam them to your play. Because now again, it doesn't happen in this comics adaptation, but in the film, Logan goes through at, at least two people. Because I know, you know, of course, Jessica comes to his quarters, but I remember there's a part where a guy materializes. Mm-hmm. And then Logan kind of makes a it, – it's funny because I was reading something – I forget where it was. I think it was something on the net or something. Actually, I think it was the Wikipedia entry for the film where some people have praised the movie for its progressive approach to homosexuality because there was something in there – oh, it's a, it's a line of dialogue where – when Jessica rejects Logan at first, he asks, asks her if she prefers women. And some people have looked at that as, you know, a, a kind of a progressive thing because, you know, he, he just asks it offhandedly like it doesn't, you know, like it wouldn't make any difference to him. I'd argue the opposite because when he got pulls the guy to the quarters, he's clearly he, he gives kind of a I don't know how to describe the look exactly, but kind of like a yeah, no kind of look you know what i mean yeah you know what i'm I'm kind of going with with somewhere in between because i'm thinking that they are saying it's acceptable in their society and the people aren't necessarily you know revulsed by it but it's just not logan's thing right that's the way i'm taking it so i'm saying i'm seeing it as progressive but it's saying you know live and let live everybody does their own thing right which you know at this time at the time this movie was made i would say was not accurate with the way no. Things were in our society, but I think it's more of that now than it was. I want to call your attention to a particular panel and, and pick your brain on this. Now, I don't. What, what is your familiarity with uh, with the Marvel Star Wars series? Not not nearly as much as you. So there's a, a panel in here that, as I was rereading this, every time I've ever looked at this, it always like picked at the back of my brain, but I think I finally placed it today. So it's on page 15 of the story where Logan scores the the killing blow on the second runner. 
the one that the guy in the pink shirt. Now, as he's hitting him in, uh, in that panel and we get the sound effect of Zrak and the guys flying back and everything and, and Logan saying right now, the angle of that and everything has always seemed very familiar to me. And I think I finally placed it. There's um, in Marvel Star Wars, and I think it's in the wheel storyline. Somebody gets shot, and it looks almost exactly like that. It's that's a, a, a very Carmine Infantino pose and layout to that particular panel right there. But this, of course, would come long before that. So it's one of those things of if it is some sort of swipe or homage or something, you know, who's swiping or homaging who exactly? Yeah, I would think if anything that that the more the uh, Star Wars artist got it from this because I think this would predate it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I look yeah. at that shot and just you know, it's kind of catty corner, like it's kind of at an angle upward, but right. If you eliminated the angle and made it straight on, it kind of reminds me of your typical Gil Kane shot when somebody gets punched and they're going backwards towards yeah. the reader. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of to me, it's it's kind of taking that Gil Kane perspective and then turning it at an angle to make it, you know, to make it its own, right. instead of just copying that. I have to see if I can hunt up that uh, that panel that I'm thinking of, and and maybe uh, when we release this episode, I'll see if I can put them up side by side or something on uh, in our Facebook group to let other people know what it is I'm I'm talking about because it really does remind me of of something I've seen from uh, from Carmen Infantino. And I can't help but think that uh, when these people get dissolved at Carousel, that they uh, that they go on to become soil and green. <laughs> Well, I've always wondered. So, are they are they enti- are they disintegrating entirely, or you know, are there is it gruesome? Like, are there like limbs, you know, dismembered limbs and stuff falling back to you know? I mean, is it is it gross at the end of the day? You know, at the bottom of that uh, pit, you know, at the bottom of the carousel where they started out of, you know, is, is there is there remains and and guts and stuff down that I don't know. Well, know? the way they show it in the comic is a little different than the way they show it in the movie, but in both when the runner gets cut down uh, afterwards, it's totally cleaned up. Uh, in the in the in the movie it seems like he, he just kind of his his remains just kind of dissolve. Whereas in in the right. comic, it almost looks like a vacuum cleaner type thing that that you know breaks him up into or turns him into dust and then vacuums him up. Right. So I'm not sure. Uh, I, from the movie perspective, I would think there are no remains. Right. From the comic yeah. book, uh, there's remains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's very different between the the film and the movie uh, with the remains of that of that runner because in the movie he gets they put like a spray on him. If I remember right, it's like a like a mist or something that's sprayed over the body, and then he like slowly we see him slowly like dissolve away, and it, it looks very meaty and you know disgusting. But then it's just totally gone. Yeah. Whereas this, it breaks down into like Perez rubble. You know, it, it looks more like rocks or something than it does of chunks of meat or something. Yeah, it's like it desiccates it. Now there's something I noticed here on page 22. You go to the bottom of the page where where Logan has the drink. Mm-hmm. What's happening right there? It 
says to me, if I'm reading that, if I'm interpreting that correctly, whatever kind of thing they have to drink in is it kind of floats like you don't actually place it down. Right. Would would eliminate spillage. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. It it does. It looks like it's floating up to his hand like he's somehow almost like a force grab type of thing, like it's floating up to him. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I'm thinking it has some sort of anti-gravity quality to it to the glass it's in yeah did you notice at the top of that page the fourth panel we get a nice little a nice little sexual hint here at the top of you know this obviously with this being you know a comic book and and created in the time that it's made and everything they couldn't be overly sexual with you know with things not like the movie. I mean, watching the movie today on DVD, and one of these days I'd love to get a good Blu-ray uh, copy of the movie, it occurs to me that when you can see this in real high definition, you realize that the outfits of the women are very, very sheer in this movie. You don't really get that in the comic, of course, but Perez's art, and I think again, this is one of the reasons I always liked this so much from you know from when I was a, a young man and everything is that he makes it you know w- without. I mean, he skirts a nice line of you know keeping it tasteful, but also you know letting your imagination fill in the blanks that she's not wearing anything under that outfit, and you get a nice little side view right there that shows clearly she's not wearing any undies. And I, I just I find that enticing and, and very uh, risque for the time, you know, that that he would do that and get away with it. Yeah, I, I think he, he skirts the line a little bit, but I think he does it in a way where the censors are going to just say, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I like the whole sequence and I like the way it's drawn in the control room where they're following the run. That's all really well done. I like that. And uh, I liked that. Logan seems a little put off by the sadisticness of what's going on. But then when the runner's actually terminated, he, he's the one that's like, you know, seems most excited. He's, ah, bullseye. Now that's what I call a run. You know, he's, he's doing the, the fist pump. But just before that, uh, he had commented to the other Sandman that he's watching this with. He says, that's mean, fellas. That's really mean. And so I thought it was a, a weird you know, dichotomy in his behavior right there. He seemed put off, but then celebrates when the runner actually is. Maybe is this to illustrate that, you know, they're doing their job, but they're trying, you know, at least with him, he, he's not sadistic necessarily. He's just... Well, in the, movie, in the movie, I think the dialogue makes it very clear. He doesn't think of himself as a killer. Right. You know, they, they, he specifically says, "I've never killed anybody. I've just, you know, eliminated runners." So he, he's he's been, I hate to use the word brainwashed, but indoctrinated, however you want to say it, into believing everything that they put forth, and that people are renewed, and that it's silly to run. Why would you run? Because right. you're going to be renewed. And I guess in theory, the renewal is you're reborn. You know, it's kind of you're reborn as a baby, and you have your life over again. But, but since nobody has memory of prior lives, it's really not. <laughs> it seems like it's pretty easy to poke holes in that theory. Uh, but anyway, you know, this this is what it go, they go with. And, you know, I mean, he even, you know, he's like, you know, when he's talking to Francis, why do people run? I don't understand. You know, he, he, he's, he's very 
very into the concept. Right. So, and then I guess the last thing we get in this issue is the whole interplay with the computer. They make it very clear that he's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. Uh, and that the, the computer just kind of carries him through until the point it's like, well, uh, you know, wow, you're screwed, pal. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think the comic does a good job of, of presenting that. I, I, I like the, the, the storytelling effect of, you know, have a panel where you show him, then you have a panel where you show the computer, then you have a close-up of his hand, then you show the computer, then you show him looking at the computer, then you show a close-up of him, then we have the words on the computer, then we have him, then we have several panels in a row with words on the computer. It's really telling the story very, very well, and it feels cinematic in the way it's showing it. Absolutely. And then we end off with next issue, part two takes off with a tale titled Cathedral Kill. So now this particular series ran seven issues. The six are an adaptation of the movie. So five, five. Yeah. I thought the first six were, and there was only one spinoff issue. I've actually got all five issues on uh, on my pad here that I'm looking at. Give me just a second. Make sure that I'm I'm right in this. That actually I have all seven on here. Does the story? End? Yeah, the story ends at issue five of the adaptation of the film. Now, originally, this was supposed to be six issues, because if you read, there's a, um, I forget what it's called here, somewhere in here, there was a thing from Jerry Conway. Uh, oh, it's the letters page. Of course, they didn't have any letters to publish, because this is the first issue, but there's a letters page here uh, called Logan's Letters, which I thought was a very uh, unoriginal title for it, where he says it here somewhere. I'm not seeing it on a quick glance, but Jerry Conway actually says that the adaptation will be four issues. Uh, and then they will be continuing the series afterwards. And they're soliciting readers for what would you like to see beyond, you know, the, the film? Cause it says here, starting with Logan's run number five, that's precisely what we plan to do. Meaning answer questions about the film and, and tell the story beyond. Well, the, the adaptation actually got stretched one more issue to issue five and then there were two issues um that went beyond the film yeah and as you're talking i'm looking and i'm seeing that you're exactly right on that yeah i think it's a testament to something that they really made no impression on me whatsoever because the only things that i can remember about issue six and seven is that issue i think it's six has a Thanos backup story in it, hence why that one's really hard to find and very expensive when you do find it. And somewhere between those two issues, I don't know which issue it is, but one of the two issues, I remember that it incorporates a lot more of the book in the aspect of Sandman culture and how they behave and and Logan's gun specifically functions more like the gun in the book because it... In the book, they, the gun actually was like, it was almost like a utility belt. It had all kinds of different features. It could do more than just shoot whatever the thing was that took out the runners. It had other things it could do as well. In, in the continuing story beyond the movie adaptation, it does have other functions. I don't remember what they are off the top of my head. I want to say a grapple or something like that. I, I forget, but it has other functions anyway. Beyond that, that's all I can remember. Remember something about Logan has to descend into the computer core for something, but I don't remember what. I think, you know, our plan is to cover this, and uh, I think normally we'd probably just cover the adaptation and move on, but since it's only two issues more, I'd kind of like to cover all seven issues. Sure. 
Yeah, I'd be I'm totally down for that. So I, I, I just I, I hope we don't end on a whimper as opposed to. Oh, know, I think we're gonna because if I remember right, issue seven ends on some sort of cliffhanger and then it's done. Yeah. So I do I, think, I think there'll be a little right. bit of a whimper at the end, but maybe we, we'll speculate as to where the story might have gone when we get there. But I, you know, I, I expect it to be somewhat sporadic. I don't expect you know seven weeks in a row to cover this, but you know we'll we'll get through this in in re- relatively quick fashion, I think, and uh, and then we'll move on to some other project. Sure. But, uh, let us know what you think. Let us know what your familiarity is with this particular story, whether it's in the comic or if it's in the uh, you know the movie version or some other way of knowing it, because uh, there was an you know it is adapted from a book. Uh, that existed before the movie, which I've never read. Uh, I was just going to ask you that. So, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's very possible that you have other ways to uh, to be familiar with this. And, you know, I'd be curious, you know, what your familiarity is and what you think of it and what you think of our coverage. Uh, so let us know. Bins at twotruefreaks.com. And cool. in the meanwhile, I guess, unless you have any final thoughts. Oh, we should rate this, shouldn't we? Yeah, we let's off. give it a rating. Let's do it proper bin style. Okay. You want to go first? You did the synopsis. Sure. I really, really like this cover, but it's not my favorite cover of the series. Um, but as covers go, I, I like it. I think it does some interesting things. Again, I really like the giant crystal life clock hand reaching for them, very claw-like. That That's neat because, of course, that's not a visual that we would have gotten from the film, but I think that's a really cool use of that hand. So that's really neat. Uh, honestly, I think the only thing that, that I don't really care for with the cover, I think some of the color choices are a little bit strange because the Sandman outfits mo- look more like the Punisher than anything else uh, with the white highlights as opposed to the black uh, that it's supposed to be. And Logan's face and head look really weird. He, he's like, for one thing, he, he looks like he has no eyes, like no pupils. He's, so he's got like white eyes. It looks kind of weird, but... I mean, you know, as far as if you're just trying to catch somebody's attention with a good dramatic cover, it does that. It's a good dramatic cover. So I think I'm going to go an A- minus on the cover. I, I like it um, with a little more refinement. And that giant negative space behind them, I don't know. It, something, they could have put something back there, I think. Um, so A- minus on the cover. Interior art is is just fantastic. I, I love this from beginning to end. I, I don't see any problems with it whatsoever. Uh, I think it's really, really great stuff. My sole criticism, as I said, is, uh, is just the heaviness of the line of the inking. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the inks. It's just uh, uh, it's, it's dark. There's a lot of heavy lines. So a little bit off of that. I'm going to go a straight A uh, on the interior art. I think it's it's really fantastic. And story-wise, um, I think I'm going to go uh, a straight A on the story as well. Uh, what, I would give it an A+, plus, except for the fact that while it did give us some things not in the film, and I love uh, this adaptation throughout for clarifying some things that I think the movie is a little bit vague or ambiguous about. Um, There are also some things that the movie did and said that aren't in the adaptation. So for that reason, you know, just uh, an an A as opposed to an A plus, but overall um, I'm going to give it a straight up A as a book. I I think it's fantastic. And uh, 
I, I think it's very telling that, you know, despite my absolute love of Marvel Star Wars, um, this is actually my favorite film adaptation that Marvel ever did, um, Logan's Run. I, I just I think it's top notch and I don't think they ever did one as good. I'm not sure I disagree with that. I'm going to say I really like the cover. Uh, you know, you mentioned the negative space. I don't really feel like there's that much negative space. It's just that they chose the backing to be white so that it almost gives the impression of uh, negative space. So I, I think it's really solid. I think it's well drawn. I think it's even, you know, I'm not the biggest Al Milgram fan, but I think he he did a, you know, a, a decent job of translating Perez's pencils onto the page. Uh, so I'm going to say just a solid A on the cover. The interior art, I am surprised at how much I am eating my own words by saying that Klaus Janssen is complimenting Perez's work well. Uh, and I really think it's a combination of, you know, both that this work is suited to it better and or that this story is suited to it better and that Perez is a little bit more forceful in his pencils. So, but either way, I think they complement each other really well. I think the storytelling is very, very well done. I'm going to say an A-plus on the... Uh, the interior art. I think it's really top-notch. Uh, and the story, I, I really like it. I think, you know, the only uh, negative, and I, I put that in quotations that I'm coming up with, is, you know, that we talked about that first scene, and if it doesn't, you know, if, if it undermines the creating the idyllic setting. Uh, but I, I, you know, that's only like on deep analysis that I'm coming up with that. So, yeah, I have, I have no issues with the way that Conway, Conway translated the story to the book. Uh, so I'm going to say an A on that also, and I'm just going to give the book an A. Sweet. So that'll be it for issue number one. Awesome. This was fun. I can't wait to get the others. <laughs> we'll see you next time with something, whether it's issue two or something else. But we will see you <laughs> soon. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Bill, Bill, Bill. Oh, Bill, Bill.